I'm Carrie. And I'm Amy, and you are listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover, a show hosted by two book nerd friends who talk to other book nerds, including authors, poets, librarians, booksellers, and regular readers. Our show follows this format. We begin with my crabby dullness and Amy's sometimes maddening enthusiasm. It took us a little bit of time to become self-aware and recognize that we embody the grumpy sunshine trope that we often see in literature. That's followed by a fun conversation with a new bookish friend about what they love about being a bookworm. Then we talk about what we're reading. And finally, we put our guest on the hot seat to answer some silly probing questions. We're glad you've joined us. Our show this week is for people who love music or even just like music. And it doesn't matter what type of music you like, so long as you like it. Our guest is Susan Rogers, a professor at Berkeley College of Music who holds a PhD in psychology. But before she was a professor, she was a staff engineer and record producer for artists such as Prince, Bare Naked Ladies, and David Byrne, making her one of the few women in the industry to have those accomplishments. Her book, which she wrote with Ogie Ogas, a writer who trained as a computational neuroscientist, is called This Is What It Sounds Like, What the Music You Love Says About You, and it came out just this week. It is a fascinating read, but also very approachable for people who aren't neuroscientists or musicians, but like to listen to music. But first, Carrie, did you have anything go on this weekend? Uh, Well, we finally got around to celebrating my birthday. Oh, so yeah, it had been delayed. Anything of note? Did you did you get the presents that you had anticipated? Yeah, the ones that I sent my husband links for specific uh-huh. links so that he could just click on them and order the exact things I wanted. Yes, I got two uh, Macbeth t-shirts. Books that I teach, I collect t-shirts related to those books. So I have a To Kill a Mockingbird shirt and a Jane Eyre shirt and a Their Eyes Were Watching God shirt and several others. And now I have two Macbeth shirts. So well, it seems um, like you have reached your limit as far as Macbeth shirts go. I don't think anybody needs more than two. Probably not. <laughs> probably not. I, I really wanted a Hamlet shirt, but none of the Hamlet designs were really doing it for me. But this, this week on our episode... Uh, Susan talks about record pulls and something that musicians often do to show each other what kind of music that they like. And so I was thinking, Carrie, if we were going to do that together, mm-hmm. we have, very, I think you and I, for the most part, have very different musical tastes. Mm-hmm. Is there a record from your teenage years that if you played it would bring back all kinds of memories just by hearing that song? What time frame are we talking? Because I mean, I went through about I don't know, like three different musical iterations between 13 and 19. Mm-hmm. So, and, and then I kept going, like I had a different musical iteration in my early 20s and a different one in my late 20s and then a different one in my 30s. So, so do you mean a completely different type yes. of music that you liked? I have lots of different artists that if I hear certain songs that I can pinpoint different times in my life. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it hasn't been just like one musical style. Now, I will say I've never I've never gotten into country like I, I just that's just not what I like. You know, when Susan talks about in the book, the type of music it makes you go, Ooh, I don't like country music. You're more of a music listener than mm-hmm. I am. Mm-hmm. And so I don't have maybe as many iterations as you do. Yeah. What did you listen to? Uh, 
if you played a song from one of these bands and I would have a visceral reaction of like nostalgia, it would mm-hmm. be the police. Mm. It would be in excess. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you too. But the kind of things that I listen to now, uh, jazz, um, some indie music, things like that. So in our interview with Susan, she mentions a band called The Shags, and I had <laughs> yeah. never heard of The Shags. Uh, and so I went to YouTube to listen to one of their songs. Talk <laughs> about a visceral reaction. Oh, my God. I could only listen to like 10 seconds. And I was like, oh, no, I cannot listen to it because it was very, uh, very dissonant. And I do not like chaos, you know, but- in, a, in a music <laughs> Song. We had the best time though. Like I turned it on in the car when all of us, like my whole family, was in the car, and then later on, I heard one of my kids singing one of the Shag songs, which was hilarious. I mean, oh there's, there's to me like those songs were like Cabbage Patch dolls. They're so ugly. People would say they're so ugly, they're cute, you know. And that's kind of like a Shag song. It's so awful, it's great. I guess so. so. I, I know that there are people who are of that opinion that things that are really, really bad are good. Like my brother-in-law has a website that's all about bad movies. Some people just really like that. I am not one of those people. <laughs> so what you're saying is the Shags compilation album that I've already bought you for Christmas. I need to take mm, that back, right? That's you what need you're to return me. it. Return it ASAP. <laughs> okay. <laughs> gotcha. Noted. Well, we had a good time talking with Susan, so let's let's listen to that conversation. Welcome listeners and welcome to our guest Susan Rogers, author of the book This Is What It Sounds Like: What the Music You Love Says About You. So Susan, thanks for joining us. Thank you so very much for inviting me. I'm really really thrilled to be here and to talk about the book. Thank you. So we're sure you have many claims to fame, but being Prince's staff engineer for several years, including when he was making Purple Rain, is mind-blowing to Carrie and I, because we are both girls of the 80s. But as we understand it, you aren't a musician yourself. So tell our listeners how you came to be a sound engineer and record producer. Well, I think there are a lot of us, kids who are obsessed with records, and that's different from being obsessed with music. My musician friends tell me when they were kids, they would listen to the radio and they'd be obsessed with figuring out the chords to a song. Or one friend told me, he said, I always imagined how the song could be improved. But in my case, the greatest joy that I got was in listening to records. So I managed to ultimately find my way to Hollywood, which wasn't that far away from where I grew up. And I just knew I wanted to be where records were being made. Now, as a woman in 1978, yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> there, you didn't see women producers or engineers, but there was one entry path that I could take, which was kind of indisputable if I could cut the mustard, and that was being an audio tech. The people who repair the consoles and the tape machines back in those days who are not there during sessions, but they're there to keep the gear running. And so I did parlay my desire to be there in the music business and work really, really hard studying basic electronics on my own and working my way up so that I was an audio technician. Once I was in the door, 
Then Prince hired me as a technician, and he transitioned me from being a tech to being an engineer. And after I left Prince, I was ultimately a record producer. Was there a big jump between those three different professions? They're different, yeah. So the technician needs to know electronics. You need some electronics training. And as I said, you're there in between sessions to repair things that have gone down. Occasionally you get to help out when no one else is available, but you don't see a lot of records being made. But Prince transitioned me into that engineering chair because he figured if you knew how the equipment worked, why not use it? Well, okay, fair enough. But uh, using a camera is very different than repairing a camera. You have to know a little bit about the art of it. So fortunately he trained me in his sound, what he liked. And I worked my way up. It took practice, but after being an engineer, I ultimately became a much better mixer. The mixer is the person who combines all the individual sound sources into a stereo recording, a stereo track. So the mixer is the person who turns a recording into a record. It's a little bit more artistic in nature. Then the producer, of course, is seeing an even bigger picture. The producer is like the director of a film. You're imagining the audience and you're imagining how this record is going to do out there in the world and who's going to like it and how they're going to dance to it. And Production involves even more responsibility and more creativity. I'm glad I got to do all of those things, and I had success with all of those positions. So you eventually left the music industry, and you, you went to – college and earn your PhD in music cognition and psychoacoustics. So what was it that made you decide to leave the music industry and move to academia? You know, popular music is by, for, and about young people. And uh, I had hit my mid-40s. And I began to recognize, like, you know, I'm not listening to the records that I'm making all of a sudden. My musical desires had had grown up. I, I started... Um, craving classical and jazz a little bit more than the alternative indie records I was making. So I kind of knew it might be time to pass the torch to the next generation of young record makers. Now, most record makers don't do that. They keep right on going. But many of them will admit they lose a little bit of their passion. Now, simultaneously, I was picking up a brand new passion, which was for the natural world and the sciences. And I started becoming obsessed with Things like neuroscience and things like uh, cognitive ethology, the, uh, the the brains, the cognition of non-human species. And the more I read about it on the sides, uh, the more I thought, oh, wow, would I love a life as a scientist. So I was able to make it happen through a little bit of good luck and crossing fingers. <laughs> Explain what psychoacoustics is, because it's a, it's a word that I had never heard before until we were interviewing you. Mm. So psychoacoustics is a branch of psychometrics. Psychometrics is the oldest psychology um, that originated in the uh, 19th century. It's the psychology of what we can experience with our bodies, with our sensory organs. For example, what's the dimmest light we can see? What's the brightest light we can see without hurting our eyes? If you're holding a bag with two apples in it and you're blindfolded and I put a third apple in there, can you tell? So uh, our ability to detect changes to every sensory modality. So psychoacoustics is concerned with how we convert air pressure waves into a neural pattern 
that we interpret as a sound. We're really good at it. Humans are really good at it. It's basically the nuts and bolts of hearing from the ear all the way up to the brain. A companion discipline is music cognition. Cognition is, of course, thoughts, and music cognition is what's your brain doing when it's thinking about writing a song, dancing to a song, uh, when it's loving a song, categorizing a song, rejecting a song? That's your brain on music. So talk to us a little bit about the book. What inspired the book? And you, and you co-wrote it with, and I hope I'm pronouncing the name right, Ogi Ogas? That's it, Ogi, yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> Ogi was at Harvard, and um, he was a researcher there. And he interviewed me for a book that he co-authored with a fellow named Todd Rose. And the book is called Dark Horse. It's about people who achieve success at something, and they seem to come from left field. Certainly nothing in my background would suggest that I could become a successful record maker, at least, you know, in the, I was born in 1956. So you didn't see a lot of women doing this. So I was kind of a dark horse. So he interviewed me for the book. And then afterward, he asked, would you like to write a book about music? And I said, well, I don't really know much about music. But I said, what I could talk about and what I'm, what I'm an expert in is music listening. My whole life has been an exercise in music listening. So we said, yeah, that'll work. So we started brainstorming. We, we started off with a record poll, basically playing music for one another. It turned out to be really fortunate that he and I could not be more opposite in our tastes with music. Every single thing I liked, he disliked. Uh, he, he was too polite to say it, but it didn't do anything for him. And his music did nothing for me. And that was so good because we wanted to write a book that wasn't about us. I mean, people don't need to know what music I like. They don't need to know what music Ogie likes. People are interested in what music they like. So I wanted to kind of pull back the curtain a little bit and take people into their love, music listening, from the perspective of a record maker. What do we listen for? What are we trying to do when we're in the studio? And a brain scientist, of course. I had all that training in school. It's nice to share it. And also to help people recognize that just because you're a non-musician, it doesn't mean you're not musical. You can be extremely musical and be a non-musician. So that was our goal. That's what we tried to do. I had never heard of a record pool before. And I, yeah. I really felt like that made it just so relatable, you know, just the idea of listening to songs and sharing them and talking about what you liked or what you didn't like. So I, I really appreciated that. Well, thanks. So it was well known in the music business that, uh, especially in the 60s and 70s, songwriters would get together and they'd have a song pool. And that was a social event. You'd pass the acoustic guitar around the room and songwriters would take turns uh, saying, yeah, check this out. This is what I'm working on right now. And they'd play songs for one another. A record poll is similar, but it's for usually the producers and the engineers and the mixers. It's for record makers, but really a record poll is for everyone. So what you do in a record poll is you choose in advance some records that you want to share with others. The rules of a record poll are the record should be something that's personally meaningful to you. A record that just rocks your world. 
Record polls are all about honesty. So you, you don't want to try to show off or impress people. You want to say, this record really means something to me, whether it's a lyric that just wipes you out or a chord change or it's clever design or just whatever. It doesn't matter the reason. You love it. And ideally, you're going to share records that aren't that well known. You know, I mean, if it's a record that everybody knows, well, you know, we tend to say, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, I've heard that one before. And your poll mates are going to have their own personal relationship with that record, especially if it's really popular. But if you play music that your poll mates haven't heard and you're showing them, here's why this record just knocks me out. Not only are they getting turned on to new music, they're learning something about you. They're learning about what you bond with musically. And that's very revelatory. So when you were writing this book, was it the original idea to have the idea of the record pull in it? Or was that something that came along later? I know that um, when I was producing records, uh, a good way to get to know the artist you're going to be working with is to have a record pull. It's in fact, almost necessary because you have to share your musical ear with one another. You're going to be making music together. So it seemed only natural that Ogie and I should have a record poll at the beginning of a, of a book on music. And uh, I would say, okay, I want to illustrate this point about, I don't know, lyrics or rhythm or realism or something like that. And I, I think this record would illustrate that point. And I'd play it for Ogie. And he invariably would have the complete opposite type of record. So for example, I'm below the neck, authenticity. I'm describing the shags and he wants to illustrate above the neck authenticity with Bach. I mean, you couldn't get more opposite than the shags. Well, I want to tell you, I, I played some of the shag songs for my kids and they just about lost their minds. I mean, the, the looks on their faces listening to that, (laughs) you know, they couldn't believe they were like, what is this? But I thought it was great. Yeah. What is this is a really good question. I'll never forget. (laughs) I'll I'll never forget the first time I heard the shags. Uh, You do have that reaction. Like what? And it was one of my, my mentors Tony Berg, a great record producer out in Los Angeles, he turned me on to the Shags, and he's the one who said, how is it possible for three people to be perfectly wrong together? These three (laughs) sisters, Shags, growing up in rural New Hampshire, kind of developed their own musical language. Technically speaking, it is awful, but... There's something about the shags, as my friend, the songwriter Tommy Jordan would say, there's something there. And that something that's there is the impulse to express yourself musically. I think there are great parallels between what the shags do musically and what a little kid does with a finger painting. It's not great art, but you can look at those little finger paintings and you can tell they're trying to say something. And it's kind of naked and bare for their lack of technique. You know, when when you and Ogie started working on the book, how long did it take to write it? And what was the process, you know, of, of working with him? What was that like? 
It was really hard. I've never written a book before, and Ogie, I think all of the books he's written so far have always been with another author. That's what he does. He co-authors books. So it had to start with just a brain dump. I gave him so much material, and we talked and talked and talked and talked about the sorts of things I would like to share with a reader. And we did, you know, rough sketches. And then eventually a structure began to emerge. For Ogie, I hadn't put it in formal terms, but of course I talked with my students about how melody works and talked with my students about abstract versus realistic records and above the neck versus below the neck. And I needed to explain those concepts to Ogie before we could write about it in the book. And as I'm explaining it to him, at one point he said, you know, you've got a new theory of music cognition here. And, and I recognized, yeah, no one else has a theory of music cognition that describes it along these seven dimensions. Now, each individual dimension, except for authenticity, is something that I learned about in college. Uh, certainly as a music cognition researcher, we talk about musical elements and how they function, and there's a lot of data that says what goes on in the brain. But abstraction versus realism, well, that's discussed in the visual arts. Novelty versus familiarity, that's discussed in social psychology, well-established. Authenticity, I threw that one in there because it's talked about in the recording studio. And those of us who make records know that it, it is a dimension. So I took a little risk with that one and throwing it in there. But there's plenty of anecdotal evidence that it is it is truly a distinction. So I would assume you, when you're talking about below the neck and above the neck, so one is like with your with your brain. So like maybe the Bach that you're talking about, like you're listening to it with your brain, whereas the other you're listening to it sort of like with your body as a whole, like what it makes you feel. Am I am I getting those right? That's correct. It refers to where you perceive the musical gesture to be coming from, the head, the heart, the hips, below the waist, where do you think that performer was feeling it? So let's say, for example, you're in the recording studio and uh, it took you a little while to get all your sounds together, but you finally got it together and the band is out there and they're playing. Well, the band at this point had plenty of energy when they first started, but now they're a little bit bored and their minds are starting to wander. So now they're playing the piece through without making any mistakes, but you can just kind of tell they're not paying attention. They're not digging in. These performance gestures that they're making don't sound focused, like watching an actor who's just kind of, as they say, phoning it in. You can mm -hmm. tell. And if, if it were an actor, the director would say, hey, you know, wake up, wake up communicate, come on, give it a little bit more effort. And what a record producer would say is, dig in, wake up, folks, you're not feeling it, I need you to feel it. Where it comes from in your body depends on what you're capable of. So a naive band, a band that's just starting out, they won't have a lot of technique. That's why the shags are a perfect example. They won't have a lot of technique. So all they can do is play from the heart. And maybe a performer who doesn't matter if, if, what the style is. It could be rap. It could be blues. It could be rock. It could be the punks. Remember from the late 70s, punk music. They don't have technique. 
but they have something they want to say. So their performance gestures are coming from the heart or the gut. It's the only place it can come from. But you get a virtuoso musician, be it Ella Fitzgerald or Frank Sinatra or Eric Clapton or Jimi Hendrix. These are people from my generation, but take any great musician today. They've got so much technique that they can express any particular sentiment they want to express. And that can come from years of training and formal schooling. And that's what we mean sometimes when we say music from the neck up. It's great. It can, it can be great. I love Ella Fitzgerald, but Ella Fitzgerald had soul. So if you make music exclusively from the neck up, it can just sound stilted. Every note might be perfect, but it sounds just stilted and stale and boring. Like you're thinking about it rather than feeling it. We want our gestures to come from uh, more than just the neck up. That that was what my piano teacher told me. I took lessons. I cannot play. But, you know, she was like, you're thinking about it too much. I'm like, I've got to think about it too much in order to do the keys. <laughs> but I guess there's kind of like that sweet spot where you know it well enough that you don't have to think about it. Mm. There's a wonderful little YouTube video about 10 minutes long of the conductor Benjamin Zander explaining how music works. And he's talking about the differences between how a beginning player, a child, plays piano and how the intermediate plays and how the expert plays. And I think of it like zooming the microscope back further and further. Initially, you're just worried about the local details. Just let me hit all of these notes correctly and in the right order, and then I'll be good. But as you get more and more experienced, you can start to see a bigger and bigger picture. Uh, it's It's a beautiful little YouTube clip. Well, it seems like this book is not really for musicians or sound engineers, although they could certainly, you know, get something out of your book and enjoy it. It felt like it was geared more towards the layperson who just loves music. So was that your audience? If it was, why was it important to you? It felt like that's an area in which I could uh, bring something original and useful to the table. So there are a lot of great books about music. I'm thinking of How Music Works by David Byrne and so many others. There are musicians who talk about what music is, what it is to them, where it comes from inside themselves, and and how they have a voice in the conversation as music makers. That's not my role. Uh, I'm a music listener. So in contrast, I don't think there are that many books about music listening that can take the the triple perspective that I could take, which is record maker, brain scientist, and non-musician. So it seemed like that was an area that I could have a voice at the table and I could do for the non-musician or the the non-professional audience something that, that brought me an awful lot of joy in my life. I could help illuminate how music works. I have a lot of brothers, and two of my brothers are deeply passionate about music. They don't know a thing about it. They they love it so much, and music brings such joy to their lives. And one of my brothers said to my friend Tommy, who's a great musician, he, he said to Tommy once, he said, how do you do that, and what does it feel like to just put on a guitar and just go through those chords. What does that feel like? Another brother asked me once, how do they do it? 
how do they think of all those parts? Many music lovers think of music makers as possessing a language that is just so foreign to them. What I hope to do with this book is to help the uh, music lover recognize, oh, no, 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 you've got that voice in there too. You've got the same voice, only you use that voice in the service of listening, being on input rather than of being on output. So your book talks about, and you mentioned that those components that help us like or love music, or maybe if, if we don't have a connection with music, it's because of one of these components. So, you know, the book mentions melody, lyrics, rhythm, is it t- timber? Timber. Did I say that right? Timber. Authenticity, timber. realism, and novelty. So I was curious, of the three non-musical components, so authenticity, realism, and novelty, does one tend to impact listeners more than than others? Or, or is it just, are people just kind of all over the map? Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think it's ever been studied. I'm the first to pull these dimensions together under a, a single theory of music cognition. And once the book gets out there in the world, scientists will either agree with it or they'll vehemently disagree, which is <laughs> what I expect because that's what scientists do. But in general, the three aesthetic dimensions are uh, dimensions that can be thought of in terms of sort of what, what we naturally are drawn to. And what we naturally are drawn to comes about through a lot of factors. Biology, genetics, things like that. Happenstance, you hear this record, you don't hear that record, or you get a chance to taste this food and not that food. Our aesthetic sensibility, our valuation system, comes about in youth, particularly in our teens, when we're trying out new things, that's when we're brave enough to try out new things. And it's either going to be rewarding or punishing. So if you've tried out some new things and you got socially rewarded for it, it worked out for you, you're going to be open-minded. You're going to be adventurous on that particular dimension. But if it didn't work out for you, something inside is going to say, yeah, I, I warned you, don't ever do that again. So we all have uh, these aesthetic dimensions that help to establish our taste in food. For example, some people are foodies, they're gourmands, very adventurous with food. I'm not. I'm very conservative when it comes to food. I like what I like, and I have no, there's no part of me that wants to be adventurous with food. Some people are adventurous with fashion, and they'll always try new things. I have tried new things, and uh, there are pictures on the internet that I'm extremely embarrassed about because it didn't work for me. Bad idea, bad idea. Since those embarrassing incidents, I'm conservative with fashion and with my hairstyle because it didn't work out when I was adventurous. We all, uh, as the biologist uh, Darcy Thompson said, everything is the way it is because it got that way. So each brain on this earth, got to be a certain way through many, many factors. Uh, It's the same thing with our taste in music or movies, books, and and everything. We got that way. And there we are. So I am not sure I totally understand uh, timbre, which is a, a musical component like melody or rhythm. But can you explain what exactly it is and why it's important in music and music appreciation? 
Yes, so timbre refers to the particular tones of the musical instruments that you've chosen to express this song. So we can say, we take a song, let's say it's Over the Rainbow, and we can look at the sheet music, and just looking at the sheet music for anyone who reads music, they can say, oh, okay, I get it. Uh, that's how the melody goes. You could ask someone, can you sing Over the Rainbow? And they can sing it. That's how the melody goes. These are the lyrics to Over the Rainbow. This is the tempo. It's moderately slow. But when you ask them, what are the timbres of Over the Rainbow? It can be anything. You can play Over the Rainbow on piano. You can play it on guitar. You can play it on horns. You can play it on ukulele. You can sing it or not sing it. So timbre is the instrument and instruments that you've chosen to express this song. To record makers, it's a huge deal. So every record maker develops their own unique sonic signature, the way you like drums to sound and bass to sound and keyboards and guitars and the vocal sound that you think is perfect, the reverbs that you think are perfect. And what you're doing is you're manipulating these sounds to get the timbre that you think is outstanding. I mentioned him earlier, my mentor, Tony Berg, but Tony's got this incredible musical instrument collection. I've never seen a personal instrument collection that was as big as this. And Tony could pick up a guitar and plug it into an amp, dial it in, play a chord, and he would just swoon. Oh, that sound, that sound. Yeah, that sound. That's a blackface Les Paul, a Gibson Les Paul guitar through a Vox amp, and it sounds so good. That's timbre. Now you unplug that guitar and put in a cheaper guitar or a lesser model. Mm. Yeah, it doesn't sound that good. It doesn't make you swoon. So that's what timbre is. It's very subtle, but we all have uh, uh, timbre templates for the kinds of sounds we like. Your book talks about parts of the brain, and I, I thought this part was just completely fascinating, but there's a mind-wandering network and the precuneus. Mm -hmm. So can you explain what are those two parts of the brain and, and how does music connect them? Yeah. So a hot topic in neuroscience right now is this fairly recently discovered network. By network, we just mean there are different nuclei in the brain that are interconnected and they interact with one another. So they're, they're a little system, a little subsystem in the brain. And they called it the default network, meaning it's a network that seems to kick in and get active whenever we go into our own heads. So when researchers ask people, are you thinking about something other than what you're doing right now? If people are answering honestly, they say yes, 30 to 50% of the time. Our minds are constantly going back and forth between the outside world or what we're doing, our task, our goal, and into our own heads. Now, when we go into our own heads, the default network gets active, which we probably do as much as half, half of our day. The default network gets active, and nuclei that are part of that network are nuclei that are associated with self-identity and self-awareness and creativity. In other words, it's your private self. It's the you that is you that no one else has access to. It's your daydreaming mind, your mind-wandering mind. When we're little kids, we mind-wander all the time. Kids are always lost in thought. It's good for them. 
but it bothers me that our adult society doesn't consider mind wandering as being useful and great for adults. I've built a career on my capacity to go into my own head and fantasize, let my brain off its leash, just let it go wherever it wants to go. So our mind wandering network gets active, especially when we listen to music. Listening to music activates a lot of the nuclei in the default network. We go to that private place if we like the music. And if we don't, studies have shown that the little precunius <laughs> is saying, uh, it's the little policeman, and it's saying, oh, I'll be the judge of that. So this was, yeah, this was shown at Wake Forest University. Robin Wilkins and her team had people in an fMRI scanner, which allows, uh, allows researchers to view an, a, an active brain. So uh, the participants were lying in the scanner and they were listening to three categories of music. One was music that they liked and uh, other was a favorite piece of music because they said in advance, oh, that's my favorite song. And then the third category was music they disliked. When Wilkins and her team played liked or favorite music, the people in the scanner, the default network lit up. And the precunious, which is not part of the default network, but it connects to it, it increased its connections to the default network and said, yeah, this is the music of us. It's great. But as soon as those participants heard a record that they disliked, the little precunious cut itself off from the default <laughs> network. And Wilkins surmised that it's almost as if disliked music needs to be prevented from being integrated into our self-image. It definitely hmm. feels like that. When you hear a record expressing music that you cannot stand, you almost feel a certain kind of revulsion. Like, get yeah. this out of me. That's little, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's your little precunious saying, do not want. Do not want. <laughs> well, m my question is, most people view the arts or creative endeavors as being very different from science, almost like opposites. But your book explores how they're often aspects of each other. So when you were working as a record producer, did you see that as a creative or a scientific endeavor or both? Well, this is what kind of blew my mind when I left the music business and went to college. So when you're making records, you're working in the humanities. Anyone who works in the humanities, who writes books or makes movies or plays or whatever, you work in the humanities, you're interested in individual expression. Your job is to take that condensed dark matter of what it means to be human and explode that into a billion unique expressions of what it means to be human, whether it's a painting or a novel or whatever. So you're trying to express the same thing everyone else is expressing, but in a unique way. Then when I got into the sciences, entered college as a freshman, I began to realize it's the same journey, only the opposite direction. Scientists are pursuing a collective knowledge. Scientists have to take their individual biases, their individual hunches and preconceptions, and try to ignore them so that they can work their way back to that center, that dark matter of what it means to be human. Your job is to describe 
what's true of Mother Nature. So it was the same journey. It was just facing the opposite direction, which was really thrilling to me. So I was working in the arts, but it was, of course, it was technical, scientifically technical. And then working in the sciences, I've been told that the best scientists are highly creative visionaries, which kind of makes them artists. This has been so cool talking about music and how your brain listens to music. And reading the book made me think about so much music that I love. And it really made me kind of want to think a little bit more about what it is about that music that I like. You know, I just always went, I like it, you know, but I'd never really thought about it. That's what Ogie and I hoped would happen, that people would uh, renew their love affair with the music that they love best. Carrie, you and I need to do a record pull. Yeah, that'd be fun. That'd be fun. We'll have to do that. Well, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we're all going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Susan Rogers and with Carrie. Carrie, what are you reading? So I finished a book. Actually, it was a book that Riley, Cassie Moses's daughter, mentioned in our first episode of season seven, uh, Ariadne by Jennifer Mm. Saint. So it is a retelling of the story of Ariadne. And she was the daughter of King Minos. And she was also the wife of Dionysus. And if you're a person who enjoys mythology, you will like this book. Um, Mm. It goes through her mother's pregnancy with the Minotaur, uh, the killing of the Minotaur by Theseus, Ariadne's role in the Minotaur's death, and her strained relationship with her sister Phaedra, who ends up marrying Theseus. So, you know, it's a Greek story. So there's all sorts of drama, you know, and it's like a soap opera. So this is actually my third book about a woman in mythology. So I listened a couple years ago to Circe by Madeline Miller. And uh, not too long ago, I read The Witch's Heart by Genevieve Gornichek, which is about Angrabotha, Loki's wife. And I have to say that I have really learned so much from reading these books. I suspect, you know, I'm retaining these stories better than I did when I was a kid um, because with these stories, you're really immersed in one person's or one character's story. Um, you know, I, when I was younger, you know, probably a teenager, read Edith Hamilton's Mythology, which is, is you know, a book with all sorts of different short myths. And, you know, a lot of them just didn't stick. And so I like it that these novels, you can immerse yourself in the story and really feel like you remember the character, you know, long after you've read it. So I like that. And also it's nice to have some of these stories from a completely female perspective. So it, again, Ariadne by Jennifer Saint, it continues that female perspective that, that we haven't gotten in a lot of myths. So highly recommend it. You know, I also read Circe and what I liked about it is I know a little bit about Greek mythology, but I wasn't as into it as a lot of people, but I felt like I was able to read that book without much knowledge of the stories that it's referring to. Do you feel that Mm -hmm. that's the case with Ariadne? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it gives you the background. And so you definitely, you know, you don't have to go in knowing a whole lot or or really much of anything. You know, I guess if, if you've never heard of a Minotaur, you might go, what's a Minotaur? And then you'll Google it. But I mean, it's definitely easy to get into. And then the story just kind of sweeps you up and takes you away. Susan, what have you been reading? Is there a a special book that holds a place in your heart right now, or maybe 
forever? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm always reading something. And I'm usually, I usually have two going, nonfiction and fiction. But first, let me say that both of those books, Circe and Ariadne, sound great. I can't wait to dive into both of them. I think I'd really like that. So currently, I'm about halfway through Brian Hall's book, The Stone Loves the World, just came out on paperback. And it's just rocking my world. I'm turning into a huge Brian Hall fan. I don't normally like fiction that spends a long time on the uh, character's inner lives. I, you know, I want a story. I want, I want some action. I want some push and pull. This writer, Brian Hall, is such a genius. I just read recently in this book, a scene where a, a fellow, one of the protagonists, is probably in his 60s now, and he's at home in his den, and he's sitting listening to his records. He's got a big classical music collection, and the cat wants to sit on his chest, and he's got to try to, you know, not disturb the cat, but he wants to get the cat out of there. And it's just a description of this guy listening to records, and I am so there. I can just see it so well. Brian Hall is brilliant. So this book is about several generations of folks who are probably on the autism spectrum. They're physicists, engineers, mathematicians. And this long generational thread is keeping these people just kind of at odds with the whole rest of the world. The title, The Stone Loves the World, refers to gravity and how gravity is like love. And how a stone, if you let it go, it's going to fall to what it loves. It's going to fall to the world. I've been on a real math and physics kick lately. So this book, it just feels like it was written for me. I really love it. Well, you That's sold perfect. it. I've never heard of that author or that book, but it sounds really good. Yes, I first learned about him, I think, in the New York Times. And I've just ordered an earlier book he wrote about the Lewis and Clark Expedition. And uh, it's a fictionalized version of Lewis and Clark, but it's called I Should Be Extremely Happy in Your Company. Hmm. Those are great titles. They are yeah. great titles. Well, Amy, I know you were in a reading slump. So did you figure out something <laughs> to read? Well, it feels like I've just been reading a lot of books that have been uh, take a little bit of an emotional toll, you know, that have been kind of heavy and a lot about death and grief and which I know are, are books that are totally up your alley. And I don't mind reading some of those. Yeah. But the book that I'm going to talk about today has actually been a nice break from that. So the name of the book is called The History of the World and 100 Animals by Simon Barnes. So I was that little girl in the 1970s who adored watching Wild Kingdom with Richard Perkins with, I think it they call it Mutual of Omaha Wild Kingdom. Did you ever yep. watch that? Oh, okay. yes. Oh, yeah, yes. on the TV. <laughs> so I'm an animal lover. But I didn't start reading nonfiction books about animals until just the last few years. And usually uh, the ones that I've read have been about a specific type of animal. Like I read one about snails. But in the case of this book, I'm immersing myself in a wide variety, sort of like a Las Vegas buffet. So Simon Barnes, he's a journalist who started out as a sports writer, actually, and then he progressed to writing about nature and wildlife. And he's had a wildlife column in the Times of London on and off since 1989. So in that time, he's also written over 20 books. A few of them have been novels, but mainly his books are based in his wheelhouse, which is nature and more specifically the animal kingdom. 
So this book, it came out in the U.S. this year, and it is a book essentially of 100 essays, and each one is about a member of the animal world that has affected our world, or more specifically, humanity in a profound way. These essays are short. Now, I'm reading the, the e-reader version, but I would estimate, you know, in a, in a physical book, they maybe be five or six pages each, so not not super long. And in each essay, Barnes gives lots of cool and interesting facts about a specific animal and how it has affected the history of our planet. And because each of these are so short, it makes it very easy to dip in and out of. Um, For instance, if I have a few moments in the afternoon where I'm just taking a little break and, you know, maybe having a little snack or something, I can read two or three of these essays in that amount of time. So I'm about a quarter of the way through. So I guess maybe 25 animals of the 100. And so far, the animals that I have encountered have been some that you would expect, like the cow or the domesticated cat. But others are some that I never would have necessarily said were overly important to humanity. And here's an example. So in one of the essays, they talk about the egret, which is a class of birds that people can picture and includes herons. They're the birds with the long skinny legs and they stand in the water very still and they catch fish this way. And in fact, there is one that lives at the lake near my house and I actually love watching him. But apparently certain types of egrets grow very long, full feathers when they are in mating season. And in the late 1800s, society women love to decorate their hats with these, you know, very striking feathers, so much so that a considerable percentage of the population was killed just for the feathers. And at one point, five million birds, I think they were snowy egrets, were killed in a year in the U.S. for hats. Until four women in London founded two conservation organizations motivated by the plight of the egret. And one was called the Plumage League, and the other was called Fur, Fin, and Feathered Folk, which I think is a very funny name. And they were quite successful turning the tide of public sentiment about the frivolous use of feathers by way of killing birds. And it was perhaps the first time that people realized that there isn't an endless supply of wildlife in nature that in fact our natural resources are not unlimited as was previously believed. So there are some pictures in this book as well that show examples of the the animals either in art or by somebody maybe like Audubon or something like that. I would say the book certainly does have a conservation bent to it and why conservation should be important to everyone. But if you are an animal lover, a zoo nut, someone who finds watching Richard Attenborough's The Green Planet or any of the impressive nature documentaries as exciting as a Marvel movie like I do, I suspect you will find this a lovely and fascinating read. And I'm savoring reading a little bit of this book each day. Again, the name of the book is The History of the World in 100 Animals by Simon Barnes. More science for you. There's definitely science, sociology, history, all kinds of things wrapped up in, you know, a fairly succinct little essay, you know, about each animal. This book is a little bit of a nerd fest for me. (laughs) I think I would love that book you just talked about, the Simon Barnes book. I've got to find that. Yeah, and he has written many, and I'm interested in trying out some of his others. Like, I think now's a good time for us to take one more break, and when we come back, we are going to put Susan on the hot seat and talk about three in the third degree.
We are back with Susan Rogers, author of the book, This Is What It Sounds Like, What the Music You Love Says About You. Uh, Susan, are you ready for your questions? I am ready. All right. (laughs) So I believe I read that you were in your 40s when you decided to go to college to get your degree, and, and then you continued on to complete your PhD. So what advice would you give to other people in their 40s who are thinking about going to school later in life? I would say do it. <laughs> I was so scared. I had dropped out of high school. I'd never been to college before. And the last time I was in a classroom, I was 17 years old. And here I was 44, signing up, you know, as a college freshman. And I thought, oh, the teachers don't want to see me there. And the other kids won't like me. And I won't have any friends. And none of that was true. Uh, <laughs> students, it seemed, it, it, some of them, I suppose, were missing their mothers. But uh, students wanted <laughs> <laughs> they, they made friends with me. They wanted to study with me. They invited me to things. The teachers seemed really happy to have an older adult in the room. And now that I, I'm a college professor myself, having older students is great because they're more invested. They're not worried so much about their dating life or their social life, so they can really <laughs> pay attention to what it is you're saying. So uh, I was also very worried, could I learn something new? I don't know. I didn't know. But I found that all of that studying I had done when I was young actually lays down pipe, lays down neural connections that you will use your whole life. So take any subject that you studied a lot when you were young and really learned to master. You can now take that same brain and apply it to a different topic and it will run on those same tracks, so to speak. So I did really well in school, and I had a great time. I really loved it. Well, I'm going to ask you question number two. So readers learn a lot about your music taste from your book, but we want to ask you which you prefer in terms of other art forms in sort of a speed answer format. So (laughs) as far as art goes, realism or impressionism? Oh, I love realism. I love the craft. My my favorite favorite is actually abstract art. I love uh, Cy Twombly and I love Jean Dubuffet and I, I, I love the real abstract stuff. I, I like realistic music, abstract visual painting. It just launches me. Photography or drawing? Drawing. Again, it's the craft. You know, that uh, art is incredible. Okay, now we're going to move on to dance. Ballet or hip hop? It's got to be ballet. It's just <laughs> ballet brings, brings me to tears. Brings me to tears. I love it so much. Okay, last one. Live theater or movies? I love both, but the most profound emotional experiences I've had have been at live theater, not uh, not so much at the movies. Very good. All right. Last question. So you are a professor at the Berkeley College of Music in Boston, but you grew up in Los Angeles and spent many years in Minneapolis when you were working with Prince. So what do you miss most about L.A. and Minneapolis? Los Angeles, Southern California, where I grew up, has a certain smell. And nowhere else smells like that. The smell of eucalyptus and sage, manzanita. It's just so intoxicating the way California smells. You never get that out of your nostrils if you know it really well. And there's no other place to get that excepting Southern California. 
as far as Minneapolis goes, I instantly fell in love with Minneapolis when I first saw it. And it's the farms and the lakes and the sky. Minneapolis has the best sky. It's constantly changing and it's so beautiful. Uh, I love, I love both places. The smell of, of Southern California is would somebody who, who didn't grow up there, would they be able to like, would they notice the smells of that area or, or is it something that you just have to grow up under no. and, and it sort of sticks with you? I don't know, but I think you'd notice it if you spent time out in nature and went on long hikes. Even if you're right in the city of Los Angeles, there's Griffith Park, and Griffith Park has miles and miles and miles of hiking trails. And you go for those long walks up in those dry, arid hills. And that scent is something that I haven't experienced anywhere else in the United States. Hmm. That's very cool. I love your answers. Uh, it's not like, I miss the easy public transportation or, you know, whatever it may be. You know, I love that it's the, it's the smell and the sky. That's great. What about Boston? Do you, ha- do you have one for Boston? Boston is delightful in the summertime. It's a small city, much smaller than I think a lot of people think. I, I have a car, but I get around nearly everywhere just by walking. And Boston is... Uh, Boston is great for folks who like tradition, just as many Southerners do. You know, if you live in the South, tradition matters greatly to you. And to Bostonians, tradition matters a lot. You can walk through the South End and you're walking through the Irish district. Or you walk through the North End and that's the Italian district. And you get a, you get a deep sense of roots here may not be very broad, but it's very, very deep. And um, it's kind of a homey sort of feeling. My mother was from Boston, but my father was from Kentucky. So I've got a little bit, yeah, from, from Louisville. And I've got a little bit of both in me. I love the country, but I love, uh, I love the city as well. And and Boston is is a sophisticated New England city, but with those deep traditional roots, which I, I enjoy being around. We did not know that you had roots in Louisville because that's where we are. Oh, yeah. Seeing the green and the horses, it's in the blood. My dad, when he was a kid, he worked at at the racetrack and he and his cousin, his cousin Pete, uh, were boys, teenage boys at the stables. And the stories he told me when I was a kid, I hung on every word. Still to this day, when I go to Kentucky, I, I think to myself, why would anyone leave here? Why would you ever leave this place. It's so beautiful. Yeah, we are pretty lucky. Oh. Susan, thanks so much. It has been such a thrill chatting with you about your new book. Again, the book is called This Is What It Sounds Like, What the Music You Love Says About You. Thanks so much. I know you're getting ready to move. So thanks for taking time to speak with us about it. We appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you so much. What a great idea this is for a podcast. And I'm so honored that I got to talk to you and be represented on this. Uh, uh, I wish you all the luck in the world. And you have my tremendous gratitude. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. We're also on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod and on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover. If you like what we're doing with the show, tell a friend. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to help people find us or leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. 
Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio, 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our shows there, live, or in archives at forwardradio.org.